Okay, everyone. Welcome. The first week of the Sabari, Safari Habura. Um, to go back a little bit, I mean, we've had a group uh, of students who have been um, uh, learning amongst our own Hachamim, uh, really, over the last few years. And something that we were trying to do is say, okay, how can we get together a group of people, like-minded group of people who want to learn more about the classical Safaradi approach? Um, we had plans to make it obviously uh, live in person uh, with regards to hosting in, in, in places such as Tiferet Eyal, uh, but due to Corona, et cetera, et cetera, we said, let's start online and from there develop and see where we go. So there's a few familiar faces here for some of us based on previous um, Khabura classes that have been had by a number of Hachamim. And I guess a really important place to start with regards to this is very much embedded in the logo that we've implemented here. Because something that's very unique about the Safaradi tradition is that the author of the world and the author of the Torah is very much considered one and the same. So what we've got is obviously the Torah and we've got there the symbol that represents knowledge, science, and a lot of the things that really make up reality around us. So it's very important to kind of stress that as one of the ethos of the Sephardi Habura. And a quote that really, really hit me recently was a quote that was made, uh, a statement that was made by Hacham Yosef Faur, which is one of the uh, great uh, proponents, if you like, of the classical Sephardi tradition. And I just want to spend a minute just going through this quote, because I think it's really, really important for all of us to appreciate exactly where we are. He says, something terrible is taking place in regard to everything which is connected to the cultural, religious, and educational tradition of the Sephardi Jews in our times. Things that in the recent past were known to every rabbinic student are unknown today, even to those who are referred to as giants of the generation. We who were raised on the ancient educational tradition, which was kept alive for generation after generation in the houses of study of the Sephardim, see the new state of affairs with a heavy heart and despondent eyes. The bridges with the past have been destroyed. The markers along the road have been uprooted. The pathways have been erased and covered with dirt. What will the young one who wishes to reveal his past do? Where will he turn? Who will show him the way? Hakam Faur unfortunately passed away uh, two weeks ago. Now, the core thing that you know, we're really trying to get across is after you see these names on the screen, there may be some that are familiar to you. And depressingly, there may be some that you have no idea who they are. And as we go through the Sfadi Habura and we go through the, the, the week's classes, you'll come to get to know who these giants were and how important they are to not just the Sephardi world, but much of the influence that they had on the Ashkenazi world and beyond. Of course, you know the likes of Hakam Ovadia Yosef, the Rambam. We know the Ibn Ezra, Saad Yagaon, Ibn Tibon. But people like Hakam David Nieto, Hastei Kreskas, Shalemo Ibn Gabirol, Yosef Meshash, Ben Sion Uziel, giants all in and of themselves. And something that I'm really hoping with the Hachamim that we're going to have on board and with obviously the Chabura members will dig into throughout our initiative. And really the, 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 the Sephardi Habura will be really based upon four main, uh, you, know, uh, you know, core principles, if you like. History, 
like this week, the first week is going to be looking at history because obviously we need to know where is this. We don't we don't want to promote any new age postmodern, uh, you know, uh, explanations. We want to go back to the roots of where where are the mekorot? Well, what is the history of our tradition? Halacha, the foundation of everything that we do as Jews. Hashkafa, what is the context in which this content of halacha uh, expressed in? And of course, the fourth week, what we'll do every every uh, month, the fourth week will include an opportunity to learn from a Chabura member. And this will be hosted in Tiferet Eyal, please God, post lockdown. So let's start. The first week, history, Hashkafic and halachic differences, Safaradim and Ashkenazim. It's really important to look into this because it's something that really explains a lot of the a lot of the challenges that we see in modern society. And if we think about it, it really goes back to Yosef and Yehuda. If we know the story, you know, this story in and of itself deserves a whole shiur. It deserves a whole, you know, university just based upon this important, important, uh, uh, you know, conflict or disagreement that existed between Yosef and his brothers. But fundamentally, if we boil it down as an anchoring point for us as we go through this presentation, it was a debate between an approach that believed that we must mingle with society, spend time in society, try and improve whatever is out there on the, ex on the external while being uncompromising in our principles. And there was an approach which said, no, we have to be very careful. We will put blocks up, barricades up, and commit to an approach that is more isolationist rather than integrationist. And both of these approaches, however valid they are, at the end of the day, was not something that dictated Yosef and Yehuda's relationship alone. This was something fundamentally that affects each and every Jewish generation. And we see it even today. And I think a really good example of this to really try and explain the difference between the Safaradi and Ashkenazi, Hashkafa and Halakha, is if we look at an example in the controversies that have occurred throughout the history of Jewish development. And one of those is in the year 1147. From that example, I think we will really be able to see the roots and see how this conflict or difference in ideology manifested. Now, in 1147, you had Safaradim, Spanish Jews, forced to leave Andalusia. Andalusia, the southernmost region of Spain. And they migrated to Ashkenazi lands, which was at the time, you know, southern France. Now, what happened here was this region was going to be the latest, but definitely not the last battleground for a cultural conflict between the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim. So just to kind of give some context with regards to geography, if you see you've got France in the middle and it kind of serves as the midway point between Ashkenaz in Germany and Sephardad, which obviously is the, the, the Hebrew word for Spain. The white lines represent very much the Ashkenazi influence that you know really took hold in both France as well as in the northern parts of Spain. You know, we, we sometimes see in the news the, the, the debates that exist with regards to Catalonia and its independence. Because at the end of the day, Catalonia really did have this very independent culture uh, and, and nation state. And we see that also when we look at Safarad historically, where the approach of Catalonian Jewry was different to the approach of Andalusian Jewry, even though, of course, they were very uh, similar relative to other countries. Now, what you see with the orange line, that's the southern part of Spain, Andalusia. And this is the region, this is the, this is the group of Jews that had had to escape 
and go into southern France to seek refuge in this particular example of 1147. Now, the Safaradi arrivals, they came into this Ashkenazi land and they came from a very outward-facing culture. In, you know, I, I could, every time I put quotations, it's from a book that I'll be explaining, uh, highlighting to you all later. But you know, it, it was described as a dazzling, vibrant, endlessly stimulating culture. It was the golden age of Jewry. The Hachamim, they were involved in every aspect of life you can imagine, from medicine to science, maths, poetry, philosophy. They held high positions. We had Hachamim who were not only in the royal courts, but these were Hachamim who you know, uh, literally held the military of Toledo for a decade. Now, the, the Andalusian Jews, they believed that their halakha was rooted in the Gaonic tradition, which is going to be a shi'ur in and of itself that we're going to have by uh, a rabbi in New York, where they show that the halakha of Andalusia, the approach, was very much rooted back from Babel. So we have Abarbanel talking about this, how the uh, Jews of, uh, that are left from Nebuchadnezzar's uh, Babylonia, they had come into uh, Spain. We have examples in, in, in uh, Yabamot, where it refers to Cordoba. Uh, there are a few more examples, which, as I said, deserves in and of itself a whole discussion and shield. But their hashkafa was also rooted in Gaonic culture, which was very receptive to the surroundings. But really, really fundamental to the Sephardi approach was the fact that reason and revelation was rooted in the same source. Rationality and revelation came from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And to really get a good feel of this, I think it's important to look at the words of the Hachamim themselves. Because if we look at it, the Sephardi arrivals, they arrived with this Mesorah from this golden age where Torah study and knowledge of God were enhanced by studying worldly knowledge. Of course, one of the main proponents, Habarambam. Listen to the words here. The apprehension of God cannot come about except through divine science, metaphysics. And this metaphysics cannot become actual except after a study of natural science. A human being has to set himself aside to come to understand through understanding science, the world, things that teach him about God to the maximum that a human being is capable of. We have Rabbi Nubahia ibn Pakuda, another Andalusian giant. Those who neglect philosophy are lazy and have contempt for the word of God and his law. This is powerful stuff. Again, Hacham Yaakov Anatoly, who was a giant in, 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 in Southern France with regards to the Malmad Talmudim, the book that he uh, wrote going through the weekly parasha. He states, and what branch of human wisdom is there that can be ignored in our efforts to arrive at a fuller knowledge of HaKadosh Baruch Hu? When one scales the heights of natural science, be sure that at the summit he will find God. And Rav da Radak, Rav David Kimchi, I mean, this, this quote in and of itself really sums up the approach. It is widely known among our people that Chazal instructed and warned us to learn the wisdom concerning the unity of God, philosophy, as well as external forms of wisdom that will enable us to answer heretics and know the matters utilized by them to destroy our Torah. Chazal also instructed us to study astrology and the vanities of idol worship, which one cannot learn from the Torah or the Talmud. This is very important. Moreover, Chazal ruled that no one can be appointed to the Sanhedrin to decide the law unless he knows these disciplines and medicine. Just think about that, how he's referring to the Sanhedrin and what kind of knowledge base they had to have. Another quote from Meiri, it is a great honor 
for our Jewish nation, when there are among us men who are perfect in philosophy so that not all of our people are bereft of philosophy to the point that the Gentiles might say, surely that small nation is a simple and ignorant people. Instead of saying, as the Pasuk states, surely that great nation is a wise and discerning people. This is the Meiri. This is not some side hacham. This is the Meiri. And Yaakov Machir Ibn Tibon, um, part of the Ibn Tibon family that we know translated so much of Harambam's works. If there are matters in the works of the Greeks, who are essentially the, 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 the leaders in the thought of uh, development in science, etc., if there are matters in the works of the Greeks that incline towards heretical views, we have taken from those works that which is good. We should learn from the policies of the Goyim, those rules which are proper. They have translated works on the sciences, each according to their own languages, even if their discussions and arguments contradict their religion and faith. Honor wisdom and those who know it, and do not inquire as to their religion. This is the Andalusian, the Safaradi approach that, under, that really pinned uh, uh, these Safaradi arrivals into this Ashkenazi land. Now let's look at the Ashkenazi hosts living at the time. And again, these are all quotes that I, I'm going to show at the end. The environment was very primitive, not as a result of the Ashkenazim, as a result of the Christians that they were living amongst. It was culturally unproductive. It stimulated little more than the instinct for self-preservation. So if we think of the Maslow hierarchy of needs, they weren't in thrive mode. They were in survival mode. They had little knowledge of philosophy, but were familiar with the mystical teachings of German Hasidut, which developed esotericism, esotericism into a full-fledged and distinct worldview. The Ashkenazim were very hostile to the outside world for extremely understandable reasons. One of the main was obviously the Rhineland massacres that took place, where you, you essentially had such disasters taking place in the Ashkenazi world that they could do nothing else but to essentially isolate themselves as a form of survival. Now the Hachamim, and there were many, they were predominantly Torah-only scholars. They wrote immense commentaries on commentaries. And it was really seen that at the time, Ashkenazim believed that worldly knowledge could be a very, very dangerous diversions from Torah. And here are just a few quotes, again, just like we saw from the Safaradim, from the mouth of the Hachamim of Ashkenaz themselves. So here we have the Rosh. Whoever would enter from the beginning into the sciences will never escape from it. He will never grasp the wisdom of the halakha, which is the paths of life, since his heart will always be with sciences. These sciences and the law are mutually exclusive and are not compatible with one another. So the Rosh, as we know, one of the main uh, you know, uh, features of Ashkenazi world, as well as Jewish world today, and, and a fundamental opinion in the Shulchan Aruch. Again, the Rosh, I do not know your secular knowledge. This is in response to uh, Safaradim of the time. Blessed be the Lord who saved me from it. The sign and proof is that it will apostatize men from the fear of God and from his law. Very, very powerful words there about worldly knowledge. Abamari, which we're going to come to within this controversy in and of itself. Those Jewish philosophers break the covenant by diminishing their Torah study. They please themselves with the children of strangers. They destroy the richness of Torah. Some of them are submerged in logic, and I have seen men entombed in physics as well. Chas shalom, that anybody would study physics. And we have Ramban, giant of, of, of Judaism, talking about how they have filled their belly with the foolishness of the Greeks. 
God save and guard us, my teachers, from such a fate. Look about and see, is there a pain like our pain? The sons have been exiled from their father's tables. They have defiled themselves with the food of Gentiles and the wine of their feasts, referring to the books that were obviously translated from the, from the Arabic into the English and from the Greek into, into the uh, Hebrew. They have mixed with them and become used to their deeds. Courtiers have been permitted to study Greek wisdom, to become acquainted with medicine, to learn mathematics and geometry, other knowledge and tricks, so that they make a living in royal courts and palaces. And it's a really good example here to show how this wasn't, a, a, it's not a racial difference. It was very much an ideological difference because Ramban, we know, was Safaradi. But he, as I mentioned earlier, there was a fundamental ideological difference between Northern Safarad and Southern Safarad as a result of the Northern uh, proximity to uh, Ashkenaz. So let's think about the role of the environment because it's really important that no one should come away from this thinking that Ashkenazim had a choice in this matter because it's really important to understand that Jewish self-image, especially during medieval times, it was that Jews should not be inferior to the host society. So in Spain, within that you know, cultural milieu, the competition was very intellectual. They were amongst the, the leaders of the, 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 the proponents of understanding more about reality, which were the Muslims of the time. So Safaradim, they demonstrated the best that the human intellect has to offer. The Safaradim believed that intellect was considered the image of God within, within us, as is mentioned in Bereshit. So the competition there was to see how could we, you know, it wasn't about surviving, it was thriving. But in Ashkenaz, where the culture was very primitive, it was a competition in religious devotion. The Christian uh, culture, you know, they, it, it was very much how much could we suffer and, 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 and almost restrict ourselves to show our commitment to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So the Ashkenazi pietists that were living amongst the Ashkenazi land, their competition wasn't intellectual. It was to demonstrate to the Christians how to have real zeal, if you like, in the service of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So it was a very environmental issue. It wasn't an internal issue with regards to Ashkenazim or Safaradim. The culture at the end of the day really defines it. So let's go back to Southern France. So we've understood the situation here. It's basically Languedoc, Roussillon, which is the area that the Andalusians arrived after the 1147 uh, you know, uh, escape. And the tension was great. You had these newly arrived scientific and philosophic learning Safaradim. And you had Southern France's indigenous rabbinic culture, the Anskenazim. So the tension was highly, highly, highly palpable. For the first time, we saw substantial numbers of Ashkenazim and Safaradim confronting one another in the same community. And the Safaradim resisted any assimilation into the cultural patterns of the native Ashkenazim. They came from this golden age and they were not willing to give up the tools that they had developed from Gaonic times to then to really get to understand the Torah and HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the matter, in the way that they knew best. And we really saw Southern France develop. So once the Andalusians arrived, Southern France, you had Hakamim who were studying. So even the Ashkenazim there, they were really embracing the development of their understanding of Torah and the understanding of uh, Halakha according to this observational form of trying to see what are the sources of knowledge out there. Because at the end of the day, all sources of knowledge are the effects and HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the cause. So how can we integrate all of these sources of knowledge and bring them to enhance and uplift the Torah, Chas Shalom, ever to bring it down? And an observer at the time, and we have a lot of these letters uh, uh, stored by uh, this book called Minhat Qanaot, which I will quote later, 
So we're able to see what was happening at the time. And Crescas Vidal was a French Talmudist. So he was someone who had lived in, in, in Southern France. And he noted the difference that was being made. He said, there are many Sephardi scholars of Southern France who are completely familiar with the science of the, science of the Talmud, being its perpetual students, contributing new insights and inter interpretations. And in addition, they were experts in the sciences. So here we really saw the model of Andalus almost being brought into Southern France to enhance uh, Southern France, uh, you know, ideology and thinking. Two names that we need to think of here. One of them is Abamari, because Abamari was a French Ashkenazi who, he didn't like the way things were going. He very much felt that Southern France was becoming this melting pot of this foreign knowledge and he himself actually delved into some sort of philosophy and, and understood some value in worldly knowledge, but he felt like things were going too far. And he went on a mission to go and discover who is the hacham that I could bring in to sort out the troubles that he saw the Sephardim were bringing into Southern France. And he called on one of the leading hachamim of the time, which was Rav Shlomo Ben Adelet, the Rashba. Now the Rashba, he's a Sephardi. It was very smart of Abamari. But Rashba was a northern Sephardi, as I mentioned, like Haramban, Ramban, where the northern Sephardim, uh, again, were much more influenced by the Ashkenazim because of the proximity to France and Ashkenaz, whereas the southern Sephardim, it was different. Rashba was very hesitant in getting involved. And when you read the letters back and forth, which I highly recommend everyone does, you see that Rashba, he didn't want to bring his uh, authority in northern Spain. What's it got to do with southern France? You know, he's got his own area. He's got his own focus. But Abba Mari kept going back and forth and letters were exchanged back and forth. And Rashba found, you know, it was time to intervene. So a ban was published. And it was to excommunicate the Sephardim of Southern France who delved into these forms of worldly knowledge. And especially with regards to the philosophy and sciences. And this is what Abba Mari wrote. These books... If some of them turn towards heretical ideas, even if this is only hinted at in the most obscure fashion, it is an obligation to perform upon them the positive commandment to destroy, to burn, to obliterate. Again, very, very, very powerful stuff. And the ban itself that the Rashba wrote, we shall excommunicate any member of the community who, being under the age of 25 years, shall study the works of the Greeks on natural science or metaphysics whether in the original language or in translation. Now, there's a few important points here, because if we look at what Abba Mari says, he says these books, referring to the philosophical books, if some of them turn towards heretical ideas, even if it's only hinted at, we have to burn and destroy. If we compare that to one of the quotes I had brought from the Sephardim a little bit earlier, it's very important to, to, to see what's said here, because it says, Look at Yaakov Machir ibn Tibon. He says, if there are matters in the works of the Greeks that incline towards heretical views, we have taken from those works that which is good. So here you have an approach, a Sephardi approach, which is, look, there's going to be problems. There are problems. But what context are we reading this information in? If we are reading them from a context of Torah, this can only come and provide benefit to our understanding. So even if there are some heretical stuff in there, we need to try and identify which is good to enhance and bring up the Torah. Whereas that same issue is not enough for Abamari in this case, because what he's saying is, even if it's hinted in the most obscure fashion, forget even trying to filter it out, we've got to burn and destroy and obliterate these books. So this ban 
you would think from Rashba, there's some value in there, especially the fact that he says, look, if you're under 25, you don't have the mental capacity to deal with this stuff. I have kids and, you know, uh, I, I also believe, you know, they're, they're going to have to learn before you delve into this, these books of worldly knowledge, you have to have the context of Torah so that you're able to see all these books through the lens of Torah. So you would think there's some rationality here. If they're under 25s, you know, don't study these things. This Safaradim did not take to this lightly. It was an attack on their Masorah. It was not something that was up for debate. The Hachamim of Montpellier got together and this counterband, you know, a lot of the time we hear about this band from the Rashba, but not often are we told about the counterband where the Hachamim stated, we will excommunicate the promulgators of the original band and their allies. And we will excommunicate anyone who prevents his son from studying physics or metaphysics or Gentile sciences. Think about that. This is not saying, look, there's a point there under 25, it's a risk, let's take it easy, guys. It's saying, no, 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 we are going to excommunicate you if you don't study these things. Imagine if we had a hacham today that said such a thing. And then we have Menachem Meiri, again, one of the giants of, uh, of our understanding with regards to the Talmud and beyond. This was his response. Who is going to obey you on this matter? You are closing off the kingdom of heaven. Even for one moment, why should one not be permitted to satisfy his soul, to please his creator, to gaze at his maker, to see his works, which he created, each according to its kind? Man has limited time on earth and only a measure of days. The soul cannot be satisfied by knowledge of the tradition alone, but with the knowledge of God, it will merit to see pleasant things. So you can see this was not taken lightly. This was not something that they found was up for discussion. The Sepharadim fought back and they really held their ground. And what we ultimately saw was the fire was burning in southern France. One camp's heresy was essentially the other camp's Torah truth. One camp sees itself as upholding the honor of Torah, while the other camp sees the former as not only displaying tremendous ignorance, but they felt that they were shaming the Torah because at the end of the day, these, these sciences isn't something to have some psychological pleasing, to just sit there and think about it. These were the ways that the Hachamim of Safarad believed they were able to get closer to the truth of the Torah and, the Hacha, and, and, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So it was serious business. The Safaradim won, believe it or not. Uh, nothing was changed. Rashba wrote another ban, which was uh, essentially ignored in the sense that no one wrote about it. The letters don't show anything in, in response to the second ban that was written. And uh, it was deemed as being not even worthy of, uh, of responding. So the Meiri, who up until then had pretty much stayed out of it. So the words that he had said here were in the same letter as here. But Meiri had the last word because the Meiri had a lot of power in the region. And he was very much on the side uh, of the Sepharadim. And listen to what he says, which I think is not only relevant to them, but it has a lot of ramifications for today. He says, look, foreign learning is no longer foreign material that might be banned. It is part of Jewish culture. The sciences are necessary. The religious problems raised by scientific study are inconsiderable in relation to its benefits. Our distinguished specialists and the scientists should be allowed to pursue their work unhindered and their writings, however troubling, should not be suspected of heresy. To restrict access to the sciences, even from a few people for a short time, would almost certainly be to their detriment and the detriment of our community. Experience has shown that excommunications do no good. Powerful, very powerful last word from Mary. 
What happened after that? I think it was no time after, unfortunately, this typical story of uh, Jews in exile. Uh, the Sephardim, the Ashkenazim, Jews in France essentially had to leave and the Christians started coming in very violently. We had pogroms, expulsions, massacres, and we really had uh, a lot of conversions that took place as well. And the Sephardi approach started to wane because we went from the thrive mode, if you like, in Andalus, where things were relatively good for the Jews, to this survival mode. And when, you tr when you're trying to study and be intellectual, it's very hard to do so in, in survive mode relative to when you're in thrive mode. And a lack of a lot of educational senses for the Sephardim throughout that period really meant that we started to see the Sephardi approach, which takes a lot of effort uh, to slowly, slowly vanish. So what happened after the expulsion, after the expulsion from France? We see, as I said, it was all movements all over. And from Sephardi, if we see, so these are the migrations that took, from, took place from 15th century onwards, really. And you had obviously the main expulsion, which was 1492. And you're seeing the Sephardim are going everywhere, really. Um, some went to other areas of France. You saw some in Italy, um, Greece, going to the Middle East, where we know we have a lot of uh, our heritage from, you know, whether it's Iran, Iraq, Egypt, etc. Some went to the Americas, some established communities in Amsterdam, uh, as well as London, which we have today. Um, uh, with regards to, you know, the heritage of Sepharad, really, uh, the indirect descendants of it spread across the world, very much in survive mode relative to thrive mode. And here we had Hachamim, who took, took the approach. So you have some Northern African Hachamim, all the way to Israeli Hachamim, Egyptian Hachamim, Greek Hachamim, Italian Hachamim, who still tried to, even though they were in survive mode, really, uh, you know, embody the Sepharadi approach in the works that they had put out. But ultimately, there were big issues because the approach started to wade. And you may think, why does Hashkafa matter? Why did this Sephardi approach matter? And I think we can only see the context of its importance when we look at a very important example, which was the Enlightenment. Now, if we think of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, this was what they called their great age of reason. The, you know, the walls of religion were to be shattered because rationality was to come in, you know, using rigorous scientific and political and philosophical discourse to just break down any idea of, uh, you know, superstition, uh, the superstitious elements of religion. And the reason why Hashkafa is important is because if we remember the Western Sephardi had a certain approach and the Ashkenazim had a different approach. Now, we know that with regards to the Enlightenment, it was an intellectual roller coaster. It was almost, uh, you know, a period where everything you knew was being thrown up on the sky and dissected and reduced down. You know, the religion of scientism, where everything is reduced down to its constituent parts, this really occurred during the Enlightenment. And if you are coming from this period with an approach, wherein you haven't studied the intellectual elements of your deen, of your religion, and of your, uh, you know, necessarily your, your mesorah, there's a lot of challenges that can come out of it. And that's why we saw one of the most disastrous things that have occurred in recent times is the split that occurred in the Ashkenazi world with regards to the reform movement. So what happened? 
So picture the approach of Ashkenaz at the time, which was very much, we don't study these things. We don't study worldly knowledge. We're just focusing on uh, what we know best. Now, if you're an Ashkenazi during the Enlightenment, your whole world is falling apart because you haven't got a Masorah that is really fine-tuned to counter these claims made by these Enlighteners, if you like. Whereas the Western Safaradim, who were in Europe, they were able to deal with this. Why? Because their Masorah was very much equipped them with intellect. Now, the Eastern Sephardim, the Eastern Sephardim were not even, you know, aware of what was going on in the Enlightenment. They were basically sidelined the whole time because it was so far away. It, it wasn't something that we were really exposed to. And what happened was when the Eastern Sephardim came to Europe and Israel, of course, after the Arab expulsions, etc., they didn't really recognize what the Bet Midrash looks like. It was very foreign to them. So slowly what we saw was the Eastern Sephardim relative to Western Sephardim. They started to adopt, as anyone would, when you go into a culture, into a new culture, they started to adopt a lot of the Ashkenazi ways of thinking, the Ashkenazi ways of dress. And what we slowly saw was this Eastern Sephardi approach, the Mizrahi approach, if you like, very much merging with the Ashkenazi approach where they're, they're almost one and the same. Whereas the Western Sephardi approach, uh, after all of the expulsions, etc., this really started to wade out. And this was very different to the Sephardim who went into Ashkenazi land in 1147, because they were very strict with their approach. Now, why is the Enlightenment an example of what happens if a Jewish community is not able to deal with these questions? I think a really good way of thinking of it is, look at what the Enlightenment was based upon. The Enlightenment included a range of ideas. This is the you know, a historical summary of the Enlightenment included a range of ideas centered on the sovereignty of reason and the evidence of the senses as the primary sources of knowledge and advanced ideals. So this was the challenge, which unfortunately we saw, it was very, very difficult for Ashkenaz to deal with, which is why we had the disastrous, disastrous uh, um, split where uh, reform basically came in because the, the, the tools were not there to deal with it. Now look at these two things that the Enlightenment came to. Look at what Harambam said 600 years earlier. Know, my masters, that it is not proper for a man to accept as trustworthy anything other than one of these three things. The first is a thing for which there is a clear proof deriving from man's reasoning. The second is a thing that a man perceives through one of the five senses. The third is a thing that a man receives from the prophets or from the righteous. The approach of Sepharad had embedded within it the same things that the Enlightenment had, but within a totally different context. It was to uplift the Torah. It is to uplift the approach that, that was believed to be the Gaonic approach. And unfortunately, you know, if, just reading what the Rambam says, you would think it's crazy. The first thing is a thing that's a clear proof deriving from man's rationality. The second is a thing that a man perceives through one of the five senses. The third thing, obviously, that's a clear thing. We have the Nevi'im, we have the righteous, but how could we even bring in rationality or the senses in our determination of what is proof? So you can see why the, the, the Hashkafa is so important because the split that occurred very much happened as a result of not having these tools where we had it in the books of Harambam 600 years before the Enlightenment introduced anything. Thank you very much. I really hope that the Hashkafic differences there are a little bit 
uh, clarified. Um, any questions, you know, we'll go, in through, we'll go through them at the end. But I think Rav Kada wants to come in because he's going to talk about some of the halachic ramifications of these hashkafic differences. An important point here, there is, you know, uh, it's very, very difficult within 40 minutes to summarize all of the differences. But there are two main books that I would recommend everybody get, which I'm going to go through a bit later as well. I'm going to post it, which is um, here with regards to philosophy and rabbinic culture. So this was the debate in Languedoc in southern France that occurred. And this phenomenal book by Magid, which is Judaism's encounter with other cultures, integration or isolation. I'm going to send these in the WhatsApp group later so everyone can, can follow up. Uh, so thank you, uh, Rabbi Dweck, uh, Rabbi, Dweck, Rabbi Kada. Please go ahead and uh, feel free to add some of the uh, halachic ramifications of these hashkafic differences. Thank you, everyone. Hello. Thank you. Thank you so much for that fascinating introduction. Um, I just want to say a big Hazakubaruch, a big thank you to Sina. For, and Avi Garson as well, who have been behind this, uh, this amazing initiative, which I think is extremely important for us Faradim here in London um, and, have, and for the widest Faradim across the world. Um, and we're very excited. This is going to be a, a joint project of various communities, um, the S&P, Tiferet um, and the Gibraltarian Minyan, amongst others. But uh, this is very exciting. And uh, I want to thank Rabbi Levy, as well, who's here with us this evening for really introducing us to this uh, concept and developing this. Of course, Rabbi Levy is a proponent of this uh, philosophy which you've talked about, Sina. And it's a great pleasure to have Rabbi Levy here with us this evening. If I can say, if I can just say, it's very much an approach that has been taught, not just by, you know, Rabbi Levy, I'm so happy he's here. Rabbi Kadab, you know, uh, my Rebbe, Rabbi Dweck, and, and so much of the Hachamim from Western Sepharad who have contributed so much to this approach. Um, so, and Rabbi Levi, I didn't realize you had come in, so thank you so much for being here. Rabbi Kada, sorry, continue. Apologies. I just want to share with you, just continue what Sina was talking about, a few examples of where we see this distinction between um, Western and Eastern Sfaradim, and more broadly, Sfaradim and Ashkenazim and their approach to Halakha. So you mentioned in the quote, Sina, um, both the Rambam and, and the Rosh. And we see this coming to play not just in hashkafic matters but also in halakha as well so i'll give you one very good example is the halakhot of yayin nesech generally speaking we know that maran is normally more lenient than the ramais that's just generally how it goes we can't say that as a as a rule but uh, in the vast majority of places the raman normally comes to be mahmir over the shulchan aruch interestingly though in matters pertaining to goyim we find that Maran is normally much more machmir than the Ramayas. And I'll give you two examples. Number one is Yai Nesech. The Harachot of Yai Nesech, if you learn the Shulchan Aruch, Maran is normally much more machmir than the Ramayas. Second example, Bishul Akum. Bishul Akum, the idea that something cooked by or baked by a non-Jew is prohibited to be eaten by a Jew. Again, we find there Shulchan Aruch being more machmir than the Ramah. And the question is, why is this the case? And I think it's very clear, the idea here is, is that a, a Hacham's approach to the Gemara, a Hacham's approach to the sources, is heavily influenced by the society and the culture that he lives in. And so when you're living in, as you said, in preservation mode, where you're just trying to live and 
the goyim around you are just a distraction they are they're just to stay stay alive from then you've got no there's no chashash there's no concern that you're going to intermarry with them or you're going to end up uh, socializing with them too too much therefore there's no need you can you can uh, uh, interpret the sources in the Gemara in a more lenient fashion because the Chashash is very far. Whereas for the Sfaradim, the Rambam and the others who were living amongst the Goyim, who were part of them, who ate with them, these were real concerns. Yain Nesach, drinking wine, if you're regularly meeting with non-Jews and sitting down with them, there's a real concern that by drinking too much with them, then things can develop and you can end up, uh, who knows where you can end up, Bishulakum as well cooking of the non-Jews. This is why we find the Shulchan Aruch much more stringent in these halakhot, because he was reflecting the Rambam's approach to these halakhot, which were one where this is a serious concern. The Goyim live with us. We are on a daily basis interacting with them. And therefore it's so important, these examples which show you how you cannot divorce halakha from the uh, societal context where the halakha was being written. Another example. Let me show you, I'm going to share the screen. Let me show you a Gemara in Yevamot. This is in Yevamot Samech Dalet. The Gemara is talking about a very interesting halakha about a woman who's called a Katlanit. A Katlanit is basically a black widow. This is a woman who, she's been married twice, and both of her husbands have died. So have a look at the highlighted here. Larishon Umet Umet Lasheni Umet Lashishi so this is the, a famous mahoket throughout Shas. How many times do you need something to occur to establish a chazaka, to establish a presumption? Rebbe holds throughout Shas that you always need twice, and the third time already you have to refrain from doing the thinking question because already after twice the chazaka has been uh, founded, whereas according to Rabban Shimon Gamliel, you need three times. Only then, the fourth time, we are going to be stringent. Now, generally speaking, throughout Shas, the Halakha follows Rabbi Shimon, that we say a Chazaka is established with three times. So, for example, in the laws of Nida, we take on the only three times mix of Vesek. Um, and in various other Halakhot, for example, Shor Hamuad, an ox which is gold, we say if it's gold twice, although Rebbe holds if it's gold twice, it already becomes a Mu'ad, it becomes a warned ox the third time, and therefore the owner has more severe punishments, Halakha follows the Bishimom and Gamliel, it's only after three times it becomes a, a Mu'ad, it becomes a warned dox, and only then, if it kills a fourth time, will the owner be, be responsible. However, here, the Gemara says, that Halakha follows Rebbe, that already twice, if a woman's two husbands have died, then she can no longer marry a third husband, because she is now a muhzak, a presumption that she is causing her third husband to die. She will cause her third husband to die. So, Hedha follows Rebbe because we're talking about Sakana. We're talking about matters of life and death, and therefore we're more stringent here. And this is brought down in Shulchan Aruch. What's the reason for this idea that a woman who's married twice to uh, two husbands and they die, that she can no longer marry? The Gemara gives two reasons. The Amoraim say two opinions. Have a look here in the English. The first reason is her spring is the cause, i.e. by having relations with her, she's got some sort of condition 
that she causes people to die when she has relations with them. Ravashi said, it's just her mazal, it's, bad. it's a bad mazal that she's got, and therefore stay away from this woman. Now, you learn a Gemara like this, and there are two very different approaches you can take to a Gemara like this. So, the Rosh, he takes his Gemara as literal. This is a halacha, which has to be kept. To the extent that even if a woman who uh, accepted Kiddushin, so of course we know when the marriage take place, take, takes place in halacha, there are two stages. There's the Kiddushin and there's the Nisuin. Kiddushin is the betrothal, Nisuin is the marriage. The Rosh held that even if she already did Kiddushin, she's done part one of the marriage, it's prohibited for her to go into part two. The Bedin cannot sanction the Nisuin because she's done something wrong. She's transgressed the Gemara. The Rambam, in one of his shooting, which I'm going to share with you now, he was asked a question regarding Yibum. So we know Yibum is the leverage marriage. Um, if a person dies without children, uh, his brother has a mitzvah to marry the woman if this woman didn't have any children. The Rambam was asked, what happens in the following scenario? Two, uh, this woman had been married to two men. Her first husband died. Okay, maybe they had children. She then got married to a second man. That second man died without children. And this second man has a brother. So now we have a mitzvah of Yibum, a mitzvah from the Torah of Yibum, don't we? That's, a, that's the classical case of Yibum. The husband's died without children. He has a brother. That brother should now have a mitzvah to do Yibum to this woman. On the other hand, we have the Gemara, which tells us that she's now a katlanit. She's now a black widow. And therefore, she can no longer marry a third husband. So what should she do? The Rambam was asked. Should she refrain from marrying a Duhalitza? Or should she do the Yibum? Now, the Rosh doesn't talk about this directly, but you would expect perhaps the Rosh to say that, um, uh, okay, look, there's a Chachamim have instituted something, and Chachamim have the power to be okel davar mina Torah, to uproot something from the Torah. That's a possible response. And you may expect the Rambam to say, look, one's the Oraita, one's the Rabbanan, perhaps Yibum would be permissible. The Rambam's response to this question shows you exactly what has been said in the first part of this evening. Have a look at this Rambam. So the Rambam was asked this question. Um, here we are. Can everyone see the screen? Shuta Rambam, Siman Reshut Chet. Can we see it? Yeah. Okay, see, so this is the whole questionnaire, a whole long question, all the way down to here. Look at the Rambam's response. I am absolutely astonished. You great rabbis who are asking me this question, who are engaged in Torah the entire day, that you actually have such a question to pose to me? Do you not have the intellectual capacity to differentiate between something forbidden by the Torah, something forbidden by the Hachamim, and then something, the third category, which isn't forbidden by the Hachamim, but just it's not recommended. And even greater the astonishment in your question, in the question of these rabbis who sent it to the Rambam, they equated 
this halakha of the katlanit of this black widow to Mila, because Mila as well, if two brothers die in a family after Brit Mila, then the third brother is not meant to have Brit Mila if he's born. He shouldn't have Brit Mila because of the safek nefashot that he's going to die. How can you compare the two? How can you compare something? Have a look at this now. Something which is like Mila, which is safek nefashot. How can you compare that to something like this katlanit, this woman, which is superstition, witchcraft, imaginative uh, reality, which in certain times, certain eras, these superstitions actually became accepted for weak people, people who are intellectually weak, they accepted these things. Says the Rambam, how on earth can you compare this question of this katlanit to uh, Mila, or to even think that this is an Isud Rabbanan? It's chalk and cheese. This is just nihush, kishuf, it's superstition, it's witchcraft. And he goes on to say, I'm not going to read out the whole thing, I can send it, you can have a look inside afterwards. Shuta Rambam, Siman Reshut Chet 218. He goes on to say, in such cases, and he writes here, This is what you were saying, Sina, before. In, on us in Andalus, in southern Spain, if it happens, if, and this was very common in the olden days, if you think about it, that women would get married at a young age, the husband may, might die uh, from, from disease, from famine, whatever it may be, and she, at the age of 20, she's been married twice, and and you know, she can no longer remarry. According to the Rosh, she can no longer remarry. She has gonna have to live her life without a man till the, till the day she dies. Says so, Mom, you know what we do? We just tell her, we had someone advises her to get, to do the Kiddushin. We're not gonna sanction it as a Bedin, but let her find two witnesses who will witness the third husband giving the ring to her. They've done the Kiddushin. Once that's happened and they've gone through stage one, then, will sanction the Nisruim, will sanction part two. Because she's already entered the marriage, will allow them to complete it. Now, Ramban's basically saying, if you think about it, a Gemara, an explicit Gemara, which says clearly, Lo you may not marry. If this woman's two husbands have died, she's not allowed to marry a third husband. The Rambam takes his Gemara and says, you know what it is? It's a Gemara for the psychologically weak. People who believe in superstitions, People who believe that because this woman has been married twice, and what's going to happen, and her husbands have died, what's going to happen is that this third husband's going to marry her, and he's going to think she's bad luck into the house, and he's going to start blaming her, and it's going to end up bad for the relationship, therefore better not to marry. <coughs> but this is just, dim or not. This is just, it's false reality. Don't take it seriously. Therefore, if you find such a case, ignore it, turn a blind eye, let her do the kiddushin, and get on with life and then we'll sanction it once it's happened. This shows you the two worldviews. I, I don't know if you can find a better example, two diametrically opposed worldviews of how to approach us. The Ashkenazi Chachamim takes us, take the Gemara as something which is, cannot be, you know, this is what the Chachamim have said. It cannot be changed. Lotina said, do not marry, means me, do not marry. My mom says, you have to understand the context behind it. You have to understand this is coming from a psychological place that these people, the Chachamim, had to also institute for the, for the psychologically weak as well. And this is where it's coming from. 
things have changed. We're six, seven hundred years on since the Hatimata Talmud. Things have changed, and therefore we cannot continue, you know, preaching these superstitions. That's example number two. One final example, and then we'll uh, allow questions, is the Rambam and the Rosh again. There are two different approaches to the world around them. So a great example of this is Sukkot. Sukkot, we know, falls in Tishrei, just after Hosha Yom Kippur. And we know Sukkot, according to one opinion in the Gemara, which is the Halakha, is Zecher Ananea Kavot, it's a reminder of the clouds of glory which accompanied the Bnei Yisrael for 40 years in the Midbar. Great. So all the, the question which all the Rishonim ask is, okay, fantastic, but why celebrate it now in Tishrei? Why not find a better time to celebrate it than in September? Says the Rosh, you know why? HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us the mitzvot to test us ultimately. And if you're going to give us the mitzvah of sitting in the sukkah in August, in Av or Tammuz, that's a beautiful time to sit in the sukkah. And you're going to be sitting in your house and people are not going to realize that you're doing it for the mitzvah of sukkah. Okay, December's too cold. So let's give it at a time at the end of the summer, Tishrei, when it's starting to get cold, not so hot anymore. Why on earth are you sitting in a hut? Ah, this clearly demonstrates that you're doing this because of your love for Kadosh Baruch Hu and the love of Torah and mitzvah. Says the Rambam, the exact opposite. Rambam says, you know why Sukkot was given in Tishrei and not in the summer? Because in the summer, in August, it's too hot. You're not going to be able to enjoy the mitzvot. Therefore, Kadosh Baruch Hu gives that a time which is perfect for us. When it's not too hot and not too cold, September time, Tishrei. Again, what a classic example of the two different approaches to the Torah. Is the Torah something which is to test us? It's something which is there, which we have to overcome. And, and uh, in Tishrei, it's a colder time. It's a time that we have to overcome and sit in the sukkah despite the cold. That's one approach of the Rosh, and that's a valid approach. Another approach of the Rambam, there is no, on the contrary. It's given in Sukkot because the Torah is to enhance our lives. The Torah isn't a, it's something to overcome our, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, to overcome the distractions of the world around us. On the contrary, it's for us to engage in the world around us and to actually use the Torah to live a better life and to enhance our lives. This shows us the two different approaches of the Hachamim of Sfarad and of Ashkenaz and how different they were. Firstly, in Halakha, which we saw in the context of both Halachot of Kashrut of Yainesech Bishul Akum, and secondly, in Halakha of the Katlanit, which we saw the very sharp words of the Rambam. And also, Hashkafically as well, we see here the Mitzvah of Sukkot, the two different approaches of the Rambam and the Rosh. And this really is a summary of what we're going to develop over the next few months, Bezat Hashem, together. And Sina, if you just want to end off with the program of what's going to be happening, because some people here don't, or some people have joined this evening without knowledge, and I don't think everyone here is on my WhatsApp group, so you may want to announce that as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Rabbi, thank you. I mean, that was, that was fantastic, uh, as ever. Rabbi Kada, really, really appreciate that. Really clear examples there. Uh, three of many that really show the, you know, some people try to separate Hashkafa and Halakha as though they are not connected at all, but you really see the ramifications and the derivations that come from a Hashkafic worldview, even in our day-to-day -day practice. One which sees Torah as being something 
that is there to enhance life, not, not make us lazy, not, not something that's an easy ride, but something that allows us to see the world through its lens of everything essentially coming from that one source um, versus, you know, another approach, which is what part of the 70 approaches of Torah, which is that, you know, isolation. It's, it, it, it's better to separate ourselves from the expressions that are out there. Now, the Sfadi Habura, as I mentioned, uh, it's, it's a mixed group that we've, we, we, we had started many, many years ago um, with regards to uh, learning uh, from, as I said, Hachamim uh, in London, in America, etc. Um, a few of us are core Talmudim of Rabbi Dweck, some of us here obviously with Rabbi Kada, uh, others we've got from Rabbi Zobin, etc., etc. And what we're really trying to do with this Fadi Habura is not a educational institute. We have plenty of those already. We just have, it's basically an outlet there where we will be providing the history, hashkafa, halakha, and the learning from a Habura member uh, as a supplement. So, you know, we're hoping to do events with uh, other institutions, whether it's Evening Base, whether it's Chazak, uh, Tal, uh, Forum for Jewish Leadership, really as this representation of uh, a predominantly Western Sephardi approach, but originally a pan-Sephardi approach. And this is not a Sephardi with regards to race, Sephardi with regards to thought. We have Ashkenazi members, we have, uh, you know, I would say that the, the people who are Western Sephardi today, um, one of the strongest holders on it, if you like, uh, promoters of it, are many in the Ashkenazi world. So it's ironic to see how it's evolved to the point where now we're seeing uh, many of the Ashkenazi hachamim. I mean, one of the things I forgot to, to mention, which is really important, is that Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, which essentially saved uh, so much of Ashkenazi Jewry from uh, the, the disasters that ensued uh, during the Enlightenment. He, you know, Rav Mark Shapiro uh, uh, spoke about this as well recently with Rav Kadar. He said that, you know, Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch modeled his Torah in Derech Eretz based on Andalusian Jewry. He saw that, you know, for, for, for Jewry to survive, it's got, it has to have this integrative model. Um, as a result of enlightenment as a result of reform movements there was a big shift where it was let's put the barricades up but i think now as we're seeing the world is moving into this intellectually advanced era the tried and tested lens of uh, the classical safarad as hacham Faro calls it old safarad is something that we desperately need because you know uh, one of the things i always say is we, we can say the western safaradim survived the uh, where Western Sephardim survived the Enlightenment. Some say Ashkenazim survived the Enlightenment. But survived is after you've interacted with it and actually dealt with the challenges, you then survived. Whereas I think if we see um, a lot of the isolationists within the Ashkenazi world, um, it wasn't something that they necessarily survived because they never dealt with it. They never dealt the challenges. There were just walls put up to separate it and, and we're not even listening to the challenges. So that's why when I say those who survived were very much the Western Sephardim. Now, any questions anybody has, please let me know. Next week, we're going to be going through uh, some halakhic principles. Um, we're going to have a series of different uh, Rabbanim and Hachamim, as I mentioned. I'm going to send out the details uh, this week. Uh, Rabbi Levi, again, thank you so much for being here. Really, really important for us to have this core uh, of, of our Western Sephardi approach uh, present here today. Rabbi Kada, again, fantastic. The other Hachamim who are involved, unfortunately, couldn't make it, but they'll, you'll be seeing them throughout the the project and please God, uh, we will see where it goes. Any questions anyone has, please let me know. Rabbi Kadeh, if there's anything else you want to add? I think it would just be nice if we can just see everyone who's uh, on board, so we can just see uh, some of the names not familiar with. Yeah, some people left out. I think we had it at one point about 36, which is, we were, we, we, we were expecting 10 a week. So this is already kind of, 
it's put it all on a pedestal now. But it would be great if some, if some of you, I think what would be really good before everyone goes, if everyone could just put on their video and audio, just for a second, just for a few seconds, just to say who you are and what you do. Uh, some of us know each other from, as I said, previous Habura uh, meetings, but it'd be really good just to get, you know, some context to the faces. As I said, content is important, but context is even more. So let's get some context from everyone, if that's okay, before we close off in a few minutes. Avi, do you want to go ahead? Hi, yes, um, Avi Garson. I'm, I grew up in Gibraltar um, and I've helped uh, with Sina, I think uh, we're launching this project and we're really looking forward. Um, and yeah, so if anyone has ideas, wants to join the WhatsApp group, um, please let us know and, and we'll take it from there. Yep. Jordan? Hey everyone. Nice to uh, nice to quick be here. introduction, really, yeah. We we don't we really really good. Yeah, just a quick one. No shield, no shield. <laughs> but it's amazing that you can do that. You know that you can put something together like that. Really, really nice and uh, very, very informative. Different to a normal type of shield that we hear. Thank you. Who else? Come on, don't be shy. We're all going to meet each other sooner or later. Jack. I'm Jack Adari. Um, really enjoyed tonight and um, I'm just thinking, I don't know why there aren't more programmes like this. It's very inspiring. Thank you, Jack. David Hazan, no? Hi, hi. Um, my name is David Hazan and I'm very interested in this whole Western, Eastern Sephardi approach, um, you know, in contrast with the Ashkenazi approach. I'm actually looking personally to find a solution which kind of unifies all approaches. And what I'm working on is a project with a friend of mine called Rabbi Daniel Gigi. I don't know if anyone knows him, who's, please God, launching a new, uh, a new organization which focuses a lot on meditation what, in such a way that incorporates Rambam's approach as well as the mystical approach. So it's kind of offering both both Kabbalah, it seems like it can't be reconciled, but it's offering Kabbalah and the mystical approach. But also, we see a certain mysticism and a certain kind of thing in the in Rambam and in the rational schools and the philosophical schools or existential schools, or whatever you would like to call them. I did want to ask a question, and that is, I heard at the beginning of the Chabura because I came late. I heard that you brought the idea between difference between Yosef and Yehuda. And I just wanted to hear, I, I find that, that I'm very into that, what that's all about. And I wanted to hear what you have to say on that. I'm sorry if it's taking anyone's time, but. Yeah, I think just for the time, I'm actually gonna send you two essays on Thank Yosef you. and Yehuda, um, which really shows how this is not a, which one is right. You know, we needed Yehuda, we need Yosef. Uh, right. it's, it's not one over the other. Uh, I think that it's not good to think that way. It's just that, you know, we have certain times when Yehuda's approach is important when we're in survival mode, and then Yosef's approach is important when we're in thrive mode. So um, I'll send you a couple of essays for that, but thank you for the intro. Thank you very much. Thank you. Anybody else? Uh, Daniel Jonas, uh, who, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> you look, I wasn't sure who this person is with this beard here. Yeah, so welcome to my... Did you get, my, Samicha, my... Did you get Samicha during lockdown? Oh, very good, very good, very good. You're, you're clearly, <laughs> clearly you're missing me. Yeah, I'm missing you guys too. Um, so uh, just for anyone anyone who doesn't know me, uh, Dan Jonas, I'm uh, uh, 
uh, one of the Tukar Al Khibra, and I'm very interested in the uh, the, the Western Sephardi approach. Um, interested to hear more philosophy. I'm very interested in hearing more. And by the way, Kolakovod for this uh, sure is very interested to hear more about how these kind of contrasting approaches between um, uh, between say for example what you what Rabbi Gada um, characterizes this approach from the Rosh and this approach from the Rambam this sort of thing is very interesting because all we all we hear it seems to me actually a lot of the time is the Rosh but what what can you do but uh, also very happy if anybody wants uh, to have anything on on uh, uh, Sephardic music I may have a few things I can help out with but it's you not do really indeed fun. but uh, <laughs> but anyway great and also if this is um, this can be recorded I know my wife for example would particularly like to to hear this sort of stuff so uh, fantastic thank you Daniel thank you there are a few unfortunately yeah, there's a few that have yeah uh Itty's not here there's a few here that we're going to do the learn from Habura member as i said every fourth week of the month and the person who's doing it this week it's a catch i don't think he's in the group now he's left but uh, it would have been good to introduce anybody else michael yeah hi there yeah so my name is michael my, my close friends call me michael so if you if you're feeling close call me michael um so uh um, no, I'm from Israel, but my, my dad's obviously, I was born in Israel, my dad's Moroccan, so all I've known all my life is um, sort of Moroccan jewelry, and obviously that all comes from Spain, so it's fascinating stuff, and I'm happy to be involved in part of the Chabur. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, hi, I'm Johnny Belilo, from, originally from Gibraltar as well, so um, growing up in Gibraltar, fascinating and really interesting to sort of hear the Andalusia side of um, the sort of the Sephardi heritage and thanks obviously Avi for for including me and uh, look forward to to listen to some more sort of uh, really interesting shurim so uh, thank yeah. you Johnny thank you welcome awesome anybody uh, else or sure. yeah Hi. I think some of you know me I know quite a few All right. <laughs> um, sorry go ahead Oh, sorry, I didn't hear you speaking. <laughs> yeah, so it's Darren, I just want to say hi. I know quite a lot of people here. Um, for many years, I think it was a, a crypto Sephardi, but I came out of the closet. If you heard <laughs> you know, open about the fact now that you know, I'm, a, I think, an honorary Sephardi, uh, maybe an honorary Gibraltarian. And um, yeah, it's great to, uh, to invest more time into into learning about it that I really do enjoy spending time learning. Thank you, Darren. Joshua, go ahead. Hi, my name is Joshua Gross, originally from Gibraltar, with an Ashkenazi surname, but we're of Sephardi origins. Um, when I'm in London, I go to the Gibraltar Minyan, and I'm a close friend of Avi Garson, who told me about this Khabura, so it's great to be involved. Thank you, Josh. Daniel, Palin. No, I think that's it. Hello, okay. can you hear me? Yeah, can, hear can you, you hear me? Can hear you now. Okay, wonderful. Um, yeah, no, so this is very interesting for me because I, I lived in Bulgaria for a year and a half, which really? is 
probably the only Sephardi country which has a Cyrillic alphabet in its symbol, um, which is quite interesting. It's uh, interesting. You may have to give a share on that at some point. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I can I can bring I can bring in some people. <laughs> Good to have you. Good to have you. A uh, few people WhatsApp me here saying, "Yeah, the intros." Yeah. Oh, it's, he's trying to. He's in the waiting room. But okay, I'm gonna. I'm, I don't want to keep you guys any longer. Thank you all for making it again, Rafkada. Thank you so much for uh, spending time with thank this project. Uh, thank you goes out to the other half I'm involved, obviously, as I've mentioned, and uh, really looking forward to seeing you guys next week. And yeah, stay in touch. And uh, please, God, we will all learn more and more together and grow as a community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys.